Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security. We're up to episode 32. So it's a multiple of eight, which is always a good sign, or at least maybe not with what we're about to talk about today. But how are you doing? I'm fine, Jay. It's always a pleasure. Um, we need to start thinking about some celebration about the anniversary episode that's going to come up in about a month or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. I know we mentioned this the last one. It hasn't elapsed yet, so it's going to be in July. Um, let us know if you want us to do a live episode to celebrate that. I'm going to say that we should definitely fun. do live uh, at some point, no matter what. And we should do it soon because um, it's so much better to get the audience feedback while we do it. So um, I would say we'll just set up a live podcast, see if we could just keep doing it. There'll probably be some warts and glitches and quirks with the first one yeah. that we do. But you know what? That could be just part of the fun. Or my cat might decide to drop in at some point. That's, that's fine. I'm I'm pro cat dropping in. I am totally <laughs> for that. I will never get upset if a cat just jumps in front of the camera, or decides to kill the the monitor like this one did some months ago. But that's a different story. That monitor um, had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. I paid for it. Um, okay, today we're talking about. Uh, uh, not just MySQL being exposed widely in the internet, but also the, the amount of stuff that you have installed and didn't actually ask for, but is still running on your servers. Um, for example, let's suppose you deployed the LAMP stack. LAMP, it's Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. But you end up not using the MySQL the, uh, installation that you, that you have included there, and you end up using the database that's on an already installed server somewhere else and you never remember to remove MySQL. So it's going to remain on that system, and it's going to remain running on that system, and it's going to be picked up by the story that we have today, which is this group that did the, does regular audits on all the internet. That means scanning all of the, the IPs that are available, the public IPs, looking for services that are open and all that, and which found 3.6 million MySQL servers that were available on the internet, exposed to the wide internet. How secure does that make you feel, Jay? It doesn't at all. And you know, part of this wasn't a surprise to me because actually I think the bigger surprise is that we didn't come up with this or something like this earlier in the podcast history because um, this has been something that has been a concern for me for quite a long time. and. It's almost like we need to give it a some kind of a term. And I'm going to say maybe insecure by default could be one, um, although you could argue everything is insecure by default in some way. But this is a big problem. And it's one of the first things I've noticed when I first started with Linux, when I was getting into networking for the first time. Um, I'm, I'm talking probably, I don't know, 2003, four, somewhere around there. Um, it's like when I start looking at the services that are running and the ports that are open, I remember thinking, why? Like, why do I have an email server? I didn't want an email server. This is just serving a, like a one static web page. But there's an email server. That's not good. And then later on, and we were talking off camera, I noticed that um, in the past, and I, I hope this was fixed, that at, at least at one point on AWS, if you set up an RDS instance, their, um, you know, their relational database service is basically like a managed MySQL service that it was, at least at that time, open to the public internet by default. And what I'm gonna claim, and I'm gonna back up, I'm gonna stand firm on this, there is no reason ever 
to make a MySQL server publicly available. But it's the case, 3.6 million at least. You know, you say there is no reason, but I've had that as a request while being sysadmin for a MySQL server. And someone, which I'm obviously not going to name, did come up to me and explicitly asked me to expose that to the to the wider internet because somebody needed to contact to, to contact the server remotely and they couldn't be bothered to set up a VPN or an IPsec tunnel or anything. It had to be open to the public. I've had that request so many times. Yeah. You know, I, I have run into issues like this and I've even on the YouTube channel have I've mentioned several times, you should never make MySQL servers publicly available so often that I feel like if I had a dollar for every time I said that, I could probably afford one of those servers that's written on serve the home. That's like a lot of money that we were talking about off camera. I could probably afford one of those servers with all the money I'd get from that. But literally I saw this story, it, we were talking off camera and my reaction was, of course, there's 3.6 million MySQL servers that are exposed to the internet. Why wouldn't there be? Yeah. Why wouldn't it be, indeed? Because MySQL gets deployed with everything. Uh, if you're deploying a, a software stack, and here by stack, I mean that you're not just deploying the application itself, but you're pulling in all the dependencies and all the tools that come with it. Um, MySQL is probably present in many of those. And if it's not MySQL, it's Postgres. If it's not Postgres, it's MariaDB. One of those three will be deployed by default because the applications store data. And where do they store data in the database? So they need a database to do it. They can't assume that you already have one, so they will bundle one with their installer. And the thing that there is that you'll just deploy and you'll just follow the installation instructions that they provide, which tell you that, okay, you should deploy this service and configure it this way. And you're never, ever, ever going to look at it again because that's that application, MySQL in this case, that was not the thing that you actually wanted to deploy. You wanted to deploy the, the, main, install, the main application there. Say for example, Moodle, it's a new learning platform. Moodle has lots of dependencies. It comes bundled with a lot of applications. If it's not bundled, it's their required dependencies. But what you actually want to use, it's Moodle itself. All the rest, you're just putting it up and you're just bringing it up because it's a dependency, because you need to tick all the boxes to get Moodle running, okay? Right. And chances are very high that you're going to deploy those services that are just required and you're not going to look at them a week from now, a month from now, something like that. They're deployed, they're running, Moodle is running. As long as Moodle doesn't fail, you're not going to look at those. And that's an issue because you installed it, you remember that you installed it. You might have even taken notes, but now imagine that you moved on to a different job. And the guy that takes over the, that server that's running Moodle, he doesn't know what was installed before. He either has to look pretty good at that if you didn't leave him any documentation, or else he's just going to be concerned with Moodle itself. He's not going to look at whatever services are also running on the machine. And that's a security issue. That really is. And I think another, there's a couple of smaller aspects of this where, have you ever had the impression that people just assume that a database server is necessary because it usually is, but they just accept that? I, I mean, I'm changing my mindset and I'll give you a perfect example. like. 
Um, the other day, I set up a landing page that I, I created a whole server for this, so just a landing page, a small server that just serves you know a static website made by Hugo. And I specifically didn't want a database server. I didn't feel like it was necessary. It's a static website. Uh, um, you know, Managing a database server for this would be overkill. Now, now, I do feel some people out there would probably set up a database. They might think that it's necessary. And sometimes it really is. I mean, you really do need a database. But sometimes you don't. And I would say, unless you know you need one, make sure you don't have one. <laughs> Absolutely. And the security steps that you need to take to, to actually properly secure a deployment like this, it's not simple. You need to check all the, the right permissions for each user that you add to the database. Um, and that might not be something very obvious. You need to check the firewall that it's blocking the right ports. You need to ensure that the user only logs in from specific IPs, all of that stuff. Um, and that won't come in the installation instructions that you follow to deploy the main application. That won't come anywhere. You need to do the research yourself. But again, because that's not the thing that you need, that's not the application that you're going for, that's just extra work that you're not going to concern yourself with. Yeah, you know, you are so right. And like you said earlier, it's not just MySQL. There's there's a lot of things that could come along for the ride. Um, one of the things that I really didn't like before, but I think given this, I'm, I'm kind of starting to understand this, the whole Red Hat family, for example, if something is installed, not always the case. I don't want to just tell you this is 100% the case and take my word for it. It's often the case that when you install something that has a service like MySQL, it's not running by default. It's not enabled by default. So after you install MySQL, you have to go in and you know systemctl enable and then systemctl start to get it running. Now, it's a good thing that it's not running by default, but I still have an issue with a any dependency that provides a service that's installed as a dependency of something else because how long until, and I, I really hate that I'm about to say this, how long until we have a systemd vulnerability that gives someone the ability to start a service by some kind of um, CVE or something to just start a service that's not running. And then once the service comes up, use it to hack a server. So having it on your system and having it disabled is good, but it's good until it's not good. And then you still have something on your server, which is why I'm a big fan of going through the packages. What do you have installed? Remove something that you know you don't need and just spend some time on that. But here we have 3.6 million MySQL servers. And to put that in context, um, how many <laughs> news stories have we seen? And I'm laughing out of frustration because this is not funny, where personally identifiable information has been leaked online that has resulted in identity theft. And it's almost, if not always, a database server that was yeah. exposed almost every time. <laughs> Oh boy, so all of those basically, yeah. all of the stories that we've done about that. It does get frustrating after a while, seeing this and repeat and all these the same stories. Um, but this comes at a much lower level. First, you should always start with a minimal installation and move from there, actually just pull the packages that you really need. But the thing yeah. is, when you pull something that's mildly complex, that has 10 or 12 dependencies, which each one of those will pull another couple of dependencies by itself. When you finish the, the command, when you pull the yam install something, and it comes up with 20 or 30 dependencies that you didn't explicitly ask for, but it's asking for your confirmation to deploy, 
you're going to press yes blindly because you just want the initial <laughs> package installed and running. That is true. You won't look at all of those. You won't check mm -hmm. what they do. But afterwards, they probably deployed a couple of services. They deployed some other configuration that you weren't intending. And you need to go in and secure them because they're not secure by default. They don't have the proper settings in place to be secured. They don't have account restrictions. They don't have all of that in place. That's all in you, on your on your end. You're the one that has to supply that. That's true. So another issue I have here, and I'm just going to ask you a question. Um, have you or are you aware of the no install recommends option in Ubuntu? <laughs> Um, Have you heard of that? It's probably like the node depends on uh, on other package managers. So, okay, how long have you been using Linux? So, so long. Just guess. I don't know. Decades. Twenty probably. something, okay. late nineties. All right, we'll just say you know decades. You've been using Linux a long time, and you're not completely sure about what I'm talking about. Neither was I until recently, and I can't remember what package it was. But I was introduced to this option in Ubuntu because I was installing a package. Again, I don't know which one. And I looked at how many dependencies were coming along for the ride. And I just looked at it cross-eyed. I'm like, why are all these necessary? I think at first I probably did hit the yes button. I was wondering why I had so many packages. But when I walked through the um, mm -hmm. process of installing this package, I really had a problem with how many dependencies were here. And I found out about the dash dash no dash install dash recommends option, if I remember correctly, that I had to pass it because in Debian and Ubuntu, it's not enough that we have dependencies. We have recommended packages too. And some of these packages that you install will by default install not only just the dependencies, but the recommended packages as well. And I had to use that option and I had to re-image the server. I had to roll it back because it had so many yeah. things that it didn't need. I had to roll the whole thing back because I wanted to be sure all of that was gone. And then I just made sure that time to use the no install recommends option. And I think that this is a, uh, a pretty big problem when it comes to Linux that we should have as few things as dependencies as we possibly can. It needs to be like, what's required to make the application run and stop right there. Everything else, we could figure out what we yeah. need from there. We don't need the recommendations. No. Um, funny that you mentioned that specific one and you asked me about it. You're right. I saw the behavior was different. It was actually like no depths. Um, I did know about that, um, that specific one because we have it as part of one of the installation scripts that we use at TuxCare for one of our products. So we do have that in the in the command line to deploying the product. Um, but regardless, I wasn't sure that the behavior was that one. Thanks for that. Every day oh, we yeah. And, and the whole thing was the, the point I'm trying to you know, get across here. Someone can be using Linux for a long time. And not be aware and there's of it. These, Right. And there's, but there's these smaller details that really lend itself to the overall you know number of packages that you've installed. And... Tutorials and how-tos out there, they generally don't include that in there. <clears throat> this might come as a surprise, but nowadays it's impossible for anyone to know everything about Linux. And not just everything about Linux, probably everything about a specific application in Linux. Everything yeah. has so many options and so many special flags and all of that, that nobody's going to be able to know that. But the thing is, when you have the, the internet at hand, if you're good at doing research, if you're good at Googling, 
you don't need encyclopedical knowledge about Linux. You can right. just look stuff up. In um, this type of information, that there are flags that prevent the, the recommended installations to, to happen. This is really good stuff. Yeah, and I, I, I really feel like this story is a very important one for everybody to be aware of because you really do need to check the not only what dependencies are being installed, but not only that, what access or is the access public to that service, right? So, of course, if it's a web server, if we're not doing an internet site, we probably do want that publicly available, at least after we verify that everything is secure. So that's okay if, if that's what you want. But the other things like MySQL, no. And sometimes it's just a matter of looking at what ports are listening on, on what, just kind of looking at the um, NetStack command output, for example. We talked about tools and utilities what's open and really look at that because my sequel like i mentioned earlier i can't make a case for that like yeah i could be frustrated and not want to use vpn and all these other things believe me i don't like doing that either but i will in the name of security because i understand it but the average person is just another hoop to jump through i yeah. totally understand but we don't want the company's private information out on the public internet and that's exactly what can happen and what is happening with MySQL right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just MySQL, like we, we mentioned. Um, a few years back, I was responsible for running a server that, was, that had Shibboleth on it. It's an identity provider. It integrates with uh, Google and uh, other identity providers out there. It provides OAuth and lots of authentication options. Um, it's a package that that's written in Java, basically. And it comes bundled with Tomcat. Actually, it doesn't come bundled with Tomcat, but it requires Tomcat. Now, I have a particular pet peeve around Java servers like Tomcat because they're heavy, they're big. Just starting up the server will give you 12K logs, which is absolutely no way in hell you're going to ever find an error message in there. But that might just be me. But the thing with Tomcat is that in addition to the application that you deploy on top of Tomcat, it will also have an administration panel. It will also have some other pages that are available by default that come available and come enabled and all of that. And you're just deploying it so that you can get the application that you want to actually run. So it, all of that is extra. All of that is our add-ons. You're looking at documentation on how to get your application running. You're not looking at documentation that tells you, okay, to secure the other one that you have to install, you need to do this and that and that and close this and that and that. Again, that's extra work on your end. That doesn't come automatically. If you're just doing something to tick all the checkboxes to meet the requirements, you need to also make a mental note to yourself or write down somewhere that you need to look at how to harden that other application or that other service that you're deploying. That will come back and bite you if you don't. Right. And you have to love Java's slogan, though. I mean, write once, exploit everywhere. That's the best slogan <laughs> ever. Oh, wait, did I say that wrong? I think it's something like that, right? It's probably something like that. It's always something like that. But but no, you have a good point. I mean, obviously, you, gotta, you have to harden things. and But in our industry, it's just so hard sometimes because I'm not making excuses. We have deadlines and, you know, we need to get this stuff done quickly. But we should never, ever get something done quickly and, and avoid looking at how to harden something. 
um, Tomcat is a, another animal, right? Um, and I'm not trying to, you know, insult a technology as much as I can help it, but I do have a lot of frustration around Tomcat due to the things that I've experienced where, um, you know, I have to be careful what I say, but some companies that I may or may not have worked for or with have had a number of issues around Tomcat and security. That's all I'm going to say right there. I'm going to stop it right there. It happened. It's really difficult to stop right there, but it yeah, is I've so had those hard. experiences as well. It's one of those pieces of software that's so troublesome. It gives you so many issues just to get the most basic stuff running on top of it. Sure, it might be that the problem is me as, as an administrator, that I'm not as familiar with it as I should be. But boy, I don't experience with other applications nearly as half the issues I've had with Tomcat and other Java-based stuff. You know, it's just There's too many moving parts. And it, it feels like it's just so heavy because it's not just that you want to run an application. In order to run the application, there's a number of things that you have to set up to run it. And it's not just enough to install Java. You have to look at garbage collection settings. And this is a, a weird world where, you know, let's just say you have an application and it's running slow. You have eight gigs of RAM. So you're like, okay, I'm going to see about increasing the memory and maybe even add a few cores to it if it's virtual to get it. I think you already know where I'm going with this. You add more memory to it and it runs slower. And the answer all along was to take your server with eight gigs of RAM, knock it down to four, because at some point Java kind of trips on itself, unless you're really good at the garbage collection settings. And there's such a science behind it that no one is good at this, right? I don't care how many years you're, you're unless you work for Java or maybe Atlassian or these companies that are heavily involved in Java, you really don't know. I mean, you have a good idea, but you really don't know how to make this work well. And not only that, but you also have Tomcat, security vulnerabilities there, there's security vulnerabilities and what you're running on top of all of that. And like you said, control panels. So you probably might have a control panel or two that's open to the internet as well. Um, it's a very challenging yeah. thing to work with in general. And JBoss and all those. It's, yeah. yeah. And at the end of the day, when I actually get the application running and everything is set up and all of that, the feeling that I have when I finish the job is that everything is just tied up with string and duct tape, and it might just break apart at any moment. And it does. And it does, obviously. You does. know what my favorite thing is about Java apps is when, you know, like a good administrator, you're having an issue, you want to solve it. So you're going to look at the logs, first thing we do, right? Um, and you look at the logs and you see, I don't know, I'm just going to make up a number, 15 errors. So you start Googling these errors one by one. And most of them are going to come back as, yeah, that's okay. It says error, but we consider that a warning because that really doesn't have an effect on anything. So even though it's erroring out, okay, that one's okay, that one's okay, that one's okay. You're looking within the errors to find the one, the one that you should treat as an error because there's just that much information. And that's not even counting the fact that Java logs are huge. <laughs> so you're right. Okay. It's very hard to stop there, and I failed. <laughs> yeah. I failed. We should, we should do a different episode just on that. Okay, let's bring it back you to my rent so much. I feel like I just put us all in a different yeah. category here. So let's get okay. back on topic and talk about this story. Okay, so 
first point, MySQL should never be exposed to the internet. Let's start from there. Yeah. Um, if you have a LAMP stack and you need it exposed to the internet, at the very least, close all the ports except AT and four four three, and let your web server be the only thing talking to the outside world. Um, but this is not the only one. This is not the the only dangerous thing. There are other databases out there. Stuff like Postgres, like I just mentioned, it also comes bundled with lots of different applications. Stuff like Redis is also a red flag. Stuff like, say, MongoDB, Elastic, all of those will provide you with open endpoints to the wider internet if you just leave them configured as default. None of them need to be configured as default like that. They should never be exposed to the internet. Okay, you, you can just say, okay, but you should know that if you're deploying the service. Yeah, I should. If I'm actually deploying Postgres itself, then yeah, I should look up the information, know about all the details that I need to configure in Postgres to do it properly. But if it gets pulled into as a dependency of something else that I'm not directly responsible for, I will not have that insight, at least not immediately. Um, and yeah, make it part of your workflow to, to actually look at the dependencies that get pulled in. Um, Sometimes it's not avoidable. Sometimes they do get pulled in through specific installers that will just do that automatically. And when you go check, oh, I have this stuff running and I didn't ask for it. Yeah, but it's needed for the application that you wanted. Whenever possible, try to move those off server to a different one that you have behind your firewall and that you do not let anybody else access except the server that you actually wanted to. Um, because Locating these 3.6 million, the, these guys, they can scan the, the internet in a matter of minutes. There are tools out there that will let you scan all IP addresses, IPv4 addresses, all ports in a matter of minutes. This has been made so quick and so fast with new generation network cards and all of that and high-speed connections. People can scan all the addresses, all the, the ports in a matter of minutes. It's not even a matter of hours now. So if they're looking for something specific that the new vulnerability has come out with, that gives them root access if it's exposed to the internet, it will be found and it will be found pretty quickly. So if it's running now and the vulnerability comes up, say five minutes from now, you can bet that in 10 minutes, you will have login attempts. You can have, you will have some people hammering the, the port where it's running, trying to find that service that's exposed and shouldn't be. Um, this is a real risk and you're just increasing the, the attack vector, the attack surface that you're leaving exposed. There's been a lot of tutorials that I've recorded for the YouTube channel where um, something like MariaDB or MySQL is required. Um, one, I'll give a couple examples. I mean, it could be WordPress or Nextcloud, for example, and there's others. And as part of the process, what I'll walk people through as you know, the beginning here is a command called MySQL secure installation, which is basically you enter this command after you install MySQL for the first time. And what the what MySQL secure installation will do is ask you a series of questions. It's not, I don't like the name, um, you know, having secure in the name because it's not, it's just going to let you turn off some defaults. And then as I'm going through these questions, I'm like, why are these defaults? Like it asked me, do you want to remove the test database mm -hmm. and public access to it. Well, yeah, I do want to remove that. And why the heck is that even there at the, in the first place? I can't even tell you why that's there or why that's needed. So of course I want to disallow public access. And I always tell everybody in the video, you know, that's what we're going to do. And then of course, when we create the user, because you need a user that can log into MySQL for the app on behalf of the app to make it run, 
And I'm going to make that user a localhost user. Yep. And that's important because you want the database running on localhost. You want the users accessing the database localhost. Everything should be localhost. Nothing should be able to go beyond that. Those are not the defaults. Yep. If you're not careful, even if the service itself isn't listening to connections, it just takes one vulnerability chain and some default setting. And that's all someone really needs to get into your server, even if it's not publicly available. At the very least, don't let it bind to 0000, bind it to 127001. Um, yep. At least it's only listening on the local lookback. Uh, but again, it shouldn't be on an exposed server, like you just said, because a different vulnerability can let people into the server and then the database is right there. This yep. is the type of things that should be separated and should be segmented and should be in different VLANs and should have some separation of traffic going on between them. But again, this is not the only one, like no. I just said. This this article it just brings to light the, the risks here. Sure, they did the scan, they found the my they found MySQL and all of that. It's also difficult to believe that. 3.6 million installations were did on purpose on public servers and were just left like that. They were not put there intentionally. This is something that happened by accident. Either MySQL came up as a dependency like we just mentioned, or someone thought that they had it secured or listening just on bookback or had the firewall in front of it, and they don't, it's not correct. So after deploying the service, you should really check if your assumptions are correct. You should try to tell net to the port, which is something really basic from a different server outside the company, probably to see if you can reach it and you can see the greeting message. And if you do, then the firewall is not cutting the traffic like it should. I'm going to um, go a bit further and offer a challenge to, the, to our listener. Now, I want to give a very important disclaimer here. Do not run a port scan on your network without permission. You could be fired. I'm not going to tell you to do that, and that's not what the challenge is. So specifically, what the challenge is, if you have permission and you are a maintainer of a Linux server, run the netstat command. I personally use dash T-U-L-P-N. That's just my thing. And have a look at the services that are listening on 0.0.0.0. Now, again, I'm not telling you to run a port scan. I'm not telling you to do any more than this, okay? On the local server itself, just run that command, take a look at what's listening. Now, if there's a service that's listening for connections, even if it's not on you know, quad zero, is that service needed? If it's not required for the application that that server was created to host, I would let somebody know about that. I would have a discussion with your team and say, there's an email server, something like Postfix, and I bring up Postfix because it's, it's common. Um, there's an email server running on this database server. Okay, this and I guarantee you a certain subset of our audience will find exactly that, or they might find something else. But the point is, um, know what's listening, know what's installed. Okay, you don't have to know. It's really hard to know what every library is for because if you if you pull a and you know this, especially you, if you pull a list of installed packages on any Linux server, you're not going to know what. 80% of those packages are for. You're going to look at this list and be like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And you're going to have like a superiority or like a um, complex about this. But <laughs> there are going to be some things that you will know and will stand out. And that combined with just running something like Netstat to find out what's listening, um, I think you might be surprised what came along for the ride that you didn't actually explicitly ask for. 
In fact, that's a very interesting exercise if you want to run that on a newly deployed Linux server that you didn't choose minimal installation. You'll be surprised by the amount of stuff that's listening. You know what my personal favorite thing to do, like at least on Ubuntu, and I know there's equivalent commands in other distributions, but on uh, Ubuntu, you can run dpkg dash dash git dash selections off the top of my lip, my head, and you can just pipe it into a text file, and that's just a list of all the packages installed. So you can install a minimal version of Ubuntu and a non-minimal version. And then you could just, once you have the text files that has the list of packages in them, you could cat the text file, but pipe it into wc-l, word count dash list. And it'll give you a number, right, of, of lines in the text file. And that'll be your number of installed packages. You can, you can actually look at the numbers. Like one could have a thousand and one could have 500. The minimal version is gonna have fewer. And when you do that, you'll know right then and there just how minimal a minimal installation is compared to the non-minimal yeah. version. If you want to run that on a Red Hat system, it's RPM minus QA. You'll get the list of deployed packages as well. You can do all the rest of the commands, just as you said. And it's also interesting to do a diff between the two of those to see the, the actual packages that you're pulling when you're not selecting minimal. And yep. I tell you for sure, you won't be needing half of those if not many more. You probably yeah. won't need Bluetooth on your server, but you'll still get the, no. the libraries for Bluetooth installed. Yeah, I, I really do feel like, you know, as much as we we say that Arch Linux is not a good fit for the server, I, I agree with that, by the way. That's going to be a really hard sell to run Arch on a server. But some of that mentality works because it is a more minimalistic by default distribution. You have to pull in things manually. But a lot of other distributions, they try to be everything to everyone. And that's really not always the right thing to be because, you know, all it takes is like some NFC thing. If somebody can get close enough to your server room and the NFC library is on there and then they have access to the file system. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. So I feel like the biggest takeaway, especially with the MySQL being the worst, in my opinion, is just have a random look you know, within the confines of the rules of your workplace and, you know, with everybody knowing what you're doing, just just have a look at it. I, I personally feel there's no no harm in running Netstat on the actual server. It could be construed as a, as a port scan if you're running something from one server to another, but be on the server and just get a list of packages, a list of ports that are open. Um, and if you come back and you find nothing's open that you don't absolutely need, you're doing a really good job. You are absolutely doing a good job. But if you find that there's things listening, that doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. You're still doing a good job. It's just that it's another thing that you really do need to be aware of. And these are, if you're not looking at the installed packages, like maybe someone else is and probably not someone you'd like to be looking. And another thing that ties directly into this, you cannot protect what you don't know that exists. If you're not aware of everything that's running on your systems, you're never going to be able to protect them properly. You won't know what vulnerabilities will impact them. You won't know what patches you need to deploy for them. So having a, a good knowledge, and by good, I mean perfect knowledge of all the packages and services running on your on your servers, it's fundamental. You really need that to have the, the proper insights to do your job. If you don't, you're at risk. And I'm going to give a, an example that's kind of like an internal look at how I do some things that I think will really kind of help people understand the problem and how frequent it is. So when I'm preparing to do a tutorial about anything, right, about it, about setting up a web app, for example, I'm looking at the documentation from the project, trying to figure out what I need to do. 
And I'll follow the documentation and it's fine. The application comes up, it's running, it's working. But then what I'll also do is I'll try to remove a step from the documentation. Like I'll just wipe the server, start over and set up the app again. And I'll be like, okay, what happens if I set up this app, but I don't include that particular package or if I just leave this step out? How does the app break? And sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't break. It works perfectly fine. And then I'm thinking how many people are following the documentation and doing exactly what it says, thinking that the documentation isn't even gonna mention something that's not required. You'd be surprised. So when I come out with a tutorial, it's sometimes the case and probably often the case, there's fewer steps in mind. Why is there fewer steps in mind? Because I wanna know how this application can be broken. I wanna just remove some things and find out how the app reacts. What is the minimal things that I could put in this server to get this app running? And usually I find that that's better. But the fact that I'm successful in streamlining the process as often as I've been, that kind of does tell you that there is a problem here. The problem is the same that we discussed when we talked about best practices and how they're really not best practices. They're mm -hmm. generalized advice that work in a majority of situations, but probably not all of them. They don't know what your environment looks like. Whoever is writing the application and the documentation for that application, they don't know what other servers you have, how your system is configured, how your enterprise manages, say, network security and all of that. So they try to give you the broadest possible instructions to deploy the, the application. That's why we struggle a bit when we want to say best, practi best practices and we avoid it deliberately because they're not best practices. They're, the best at that time for whoever was writing that documentation, but you always should keep in mind that your specific environment, your specific settings, your specific right. policies regarding data security and software deployment and all that, those will always trump the, the best practices. If you have something different that you always do for the applications that you deploy, say you change the logging facility, you, change, you send the logs to a different server, you don't store them on the server where the application is, no instructions will ever mention that. You have to do that by yourself. So the best yep. practices for that application, they don't apply to your case. You'll have to adapt that. And that is always true. That always apply. Sometimes. If you're thinking, yeah, sure, but that doesn't apply to me because my company would just follow the instructions. That's not true. You, the only thing you need to have is a different authentication provider for the instructions to no longer match. If you need to adapt the, the authentication the way that you get the, the authentication from, and it's not Active Directory, and that you're running a local LDAP server. Now you have to tweak the LDAP code to get the, the username and to, get, to make sure that the password matches and all of that. The best practice will no longer match. Okay, So don't take the best practices at heart. Don't take the instructions at heart because they are targeted at the broadest possible cases, not your specific situation. Completely agree. Another thing that I feel is the case is that... Um, Sometimes the best practice is the best practice, actually legitimately is the best practice for the vendor, not you. And what I mean by that is, you know, it could be as simple hypothetically as a company who's getting support calls and messages in the forums. Why doesn't this thing work this way? And the answer might be, well, if you install this extra package here, it'll take care of it. And they keep answering that, they're answering phone calls. How long until the company puts that right in the documentation and puts it on the list of things to do 
just to avoid the support calls. Doesn't mean that it's the best practice for you as the user or administrator. It could just be as simple as the vendor just really doesn't want to have any more calls about this. And it could be a feature that not everybody uses. And um, sometimes, as much as I hate to say that, some companies, I mean, that's that's their best practice to have to handle fewer calls. Absolutely. That's completely true. Again, it might not be your best case. It might not fit your scenario. It might not fit your this, your needs. They have to come up with installation instructions, and that's the one that's going to fit. Even if it's 90% of the case, it's not going to be 99%. That's too high of a number for this. But even if it covers the majority, your environment might be so different, might have this special quirk or something, that it won't apply directly to yours. And this is true for all software that you deploy, for all systems that you deploy. You always need to make sure that what you're following with the instructions and the dependencies and all of that that you're pulling in, they actually match the environment that you have and the specific needs that you have. And you have to adjust. You know, basically, in all cases, you need to adjust them. So don't take don't take the instructions so at heart that you just blindly follow what they say and pull everything that they tell you to. Sometimes it's not necessary. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, one time I was updating the NextCloud um, documentation for installing that, so I'll use that as an example again. And I was running into a failure with the new version, trying to get it running. It would run and it would work perfectly fine. But there was just one package that kept causing problems. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what happens if I just don't include that package at all when I set this up from scratch again? It worked fine. No problem, no difference. The side effect that I noticed was I couldn't change the color of the header on the top of the, of the page. That was it. I lost my ability to do that by not including the package. And you know what? I think that I could live with the default blue color. I'm fine with that. I mean, yeah, green is my favorite color. It's fine. I'll accept blue. It's okay. That's one less package to have installed. And then I asked myself, well, how how necessary was that to where I could just you know, change the color of something, I would probably just rather not at that point. I mean, there could be a vulnerability with that thing that I'm just for that one feature that doesn't really matter. Some I mean, dependencies are pulled just for that, just for one specific place in the code where they couldn't find a workaround and they wanted to provide some new feature, but that's the only instance that they need the dependency. And if it's not there, they'll just provide you with a, another default and it's fine. Yep. But they'll still list it as required. They'll still be included in the package manifesto that they have to pull that in as a required the package when you're deploying it. And that will lead to bloat, and that will lead to stuff that you don't actually need being deployed on your servers. I'm struggling to remember. I'm wondering if you'll remember, because I know the answer to this. I just can't remember the name of it. The um, agency that has the documentation about the best things to put in the image and hardening your image. They have like a whole PDF out there that you could follow. Um, it's a security. I'm trying to remember that because I feel like that's literally the thing to follow because they'll tell you in that documentation, look at your packages, remove what you don't need, remove the things that are listening that you don't need. And it's a very extensive list of things to look at See? when you're creating an image. Just trying to remember the Excuse name me. of it. It might have been. If, if not, we could put it in the description below uh, if we find it off camera. But that's a good thing to follow in this case because they'll literally take you through maybe not all of this, but a good good majority of it, I think. Yeah. It's pretty extensive. Yeah, it's pretty extensive. Um, 
but yeah, we've rented yet again for so yeah. long. Um, you get pretty heated sometimes, especially me. Sorry. Uh, no, not just that. We did touch on Tomcat, and that's that really. At Let's not get into that again. Let's have a um, I hate Tomcat episode coming up. Let's, let's not do that. Let's, let's totally not do that. It would just be I hate Tomcat and repeat for so long. Um, but yeah, this was just to get you thinking about um, the different stuff that you might have running and don't actually need. Um, yep. Look at the ports that are open. Look at the services that you're running and ask yourself, do I really need this? Is there a use case for this to continue to be open? in the future. If not, either shut down the service or close the port at the firewall level. Either way, you'll be more secure. I would say stop the service and add it to the firewall, you know, block it in the yeah. firewall. So even if someone does find a way to, you know, get in there and start a service, then no communication should be able to happen. And then install it if you can. Right, just uninstall it is probably even the better thing to do. Or yeah. um, if you really want to go crazy, you could just, you know, uninstall it, create a text file with the same name as the binary, just um, have nothing in it, and then, you know, chatter plus I, so it can't be modified. <laughs> I mean, there's no end to the level that you could go with this when you get more yeah. advanced with Linux, but I'll stop there because I could, again, yeah. throw another 30 minutes on that, and I won't, and I shouldn't and, do that. And if you think this is pretty basic stuff that we shouldn't be covering, well, 3.6 million MySQL servers tell you otherwise. Yep, and even the best of us, we sometimes we're tired. We're you know life gets in the way. We're we're not as energetic. You know this is kind of just as I said in the previous episode. We're letting you guys know about things to keep an eye on that you may not always look at first. Absolutely, and we hope it helps. We do. Okay, everybody. Thanks again for listening, and until the next one. Yep. Bye. Thank you.